Greetings and good afternoon to everyone listening. This is Clarence Jones uh, from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. Before I get into my show this week, I just heard some stuff that I had to get off my chest. Um, wasn't able to get out here, um, talk to you guys two weeks ago, had a personal issue, had to take care of. But something came up today that I had to get off my chest and talk about before I get into the show. And so uh, there's a big question going around about black women relative to white men in the workplace and how there's a big wealth and in, in, um, there's a big gap in salaries and purchasing power and just authority, uh, which I have no doubt. And, um, and first, let me commend so many black women. No one has any right to begrudge them for the successes they're having in their professional lives. Uh, clearly, that helps the black community and black race and, and ultimately helps America with its uh, diversity. And, you know, you have a new group of people uh, coming in that are contributing that traditionally have not. Now, they've always, the black woman has always been around uh, working and been the backbone of the black community since we've been here. So, but now they're more public, they have a more public image and they have a more public presence politically, socially, economically, which is absolutely a good thing. Uh, the problem with that, and, it, and now we're, we're talking, and, and also with that, the question you have many black women asking to black men, of all people, are you a, an ally to black women? And so, and in previous shows, this is a, an unfortunate issue. It's just an illustration of the lack of understanding of power of black people. And so this gets into black civilization, the lack of black civilization, and black zombie nation that I referred to before. When we talk about people that, don't under, that we don't understand power, we don't understand how it works, we do not how, understand how to wield it. The very question... Uh, that very question, are you an ally to black women, uh, being concerned about black women's uh, salary gap relative to white men? It's pretty simple. The whole concept is puts black women as an individual group, an, an isolated group, pursuing power for their own gain and interest, meaning we're black women, we're trying to take power, are you down with it? And so that's the misunderstanding of the black race. Black people should be taking power. So the very question is saying, basically putting black women out on a limb, that they're literally pursuing power for, for their direct benefit. And so if that is, in fact, the case, I don't think it is. But the question is a, it's, it's a dumb question, or it is a question that gets into the lack of black civilization and black zombie nation. If, if, you, if black women are pursuing power for their own interests, then they're not doing something, anything for the interests of the black community and black people. You understand what I'm saying? So that question is, is not a valid question. That point of view is not valid. What is valid is the white man, who I have no doubt have a, make more money than probably everyone, where does the white man work? Where does he live? Where does he reside? He resides in his own civilization. 
civilizations are created to benefit the people who create them. And I'm not saying, you know, if, if there if there's a, a wealth gap, if there's a salary gap, um, and, and they got specific. If let's let's say let's give an example of if you're a law firm and you're an environmental attorney, a corporate attorney, listen, not even environmental, if you're a corporate attorney and you've been there 10 years and you're a white male and then there's a female that's been there 10 years and, and, and won similar amounts of cases, I don't see anything, uh, you know, it's not normal for the black woman, the Asian, the Latino, the LGBT, it is not really that that normal for them to get a for there to be a wealth gap or salary gap. So they should be paid the same or very similar. Now, when you go in and you negotiate, that's part of the process too. Again, as an athlete, a pro athlete, you have to go in and negotiate for what you're trying to get as far as um, com- you know, uh, as far as compensation. And to be honest with you, that goes that goes in, into it as well. A lot of times, women are not um, they are they're quick and they have an easy tendency to stand up for other people. They're not as quick to stand up for themselves, so that might be part of it as well. But bottom line is, if you're an environmental attorney or corporate attorney, you've been there ten years, and so and a white male's been there ten years, and, and he gets thirty to forty percent more. You know, that doesn't make sense to me. So, but as far as the greater scheme of things, the big picture is simple. The black man, the white man works in white civilization. And so that civilization is built to house and take care of him. And so the black female doesn't, he, she works in some, as well as the black male as well as the Asian male and female, as well as the Latino male and female. They all work in uh, civilization. They all work in someone else's civilization. So that civilization is not created to benefit them. So they have to understand that. What we need to do is to create our own civilizations, our own societies within this you know, greater American society. So just wanted to get that off my chest. Before we got into the show. So, greetings from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. This show has been created to bring to light the need of a centralized culture in the African-American community and to show how many of the struggles in the black community are rooted in a lack of a centralized culture, uh, African-based culture, in the black race as it exists in Western civilization and the Western Hemisphere. As you know, I'm Paris Jones, as, I, as always, your host today. And I will use this show to make a case for using the fall holiday of Kwanzaa. I think that may be able to help us as a platform for the many different kinds of black people to gather around. I would take Kwanzaa and turn it into a year-round system instead of a once-a-year holiday. So a fair question is why Kwanzaa, what is it about Kwanzaa that can help the black community? Uh, Kwanzaa is African. It is of Africa, but not specific to a particular tribe of Africa. So it is inclusive to all African peoples. Kwanzaa is a first fruits harvest celebration that does not infringe upon religion, uh, nationality, geography, or ethnicity. 
The African peoples need an ancestry-based system that all black people can rally around. This would lead to better camaraderie, more familiarity, uh, better continuity, and more, um, just more, more organization. Uh, this would lead to an enhanced ability to organize, coordinate, and orchestrate as one group. And, of course, the results of all these processes together are what is called unity. Unity is a key ingredient that's been lacking in the black population. It has been at the root of many of the struggles and challenges. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it's, it's hampered its ability to deal with adversity, struggles, and its enemies as one force. I'm going to use this show to make a case uh, for the need of a central culture in the black population and for the practicality of using Kwanzaa as that central uh, platform, that cultural platform. I'm going to cite history, my personal life as, pro as a pro athlete, former professional athlete, current events and books I've read as illustrations for that need of a central culture in the black population. Now, this week, we talk and we're going to do some more. Uh, we're going to look more into the book uh, that I read, written by Dr. Uh, Professor Manning Marable, How Capitalism Underdeveloped the Black America. We're also going to look at another book I read called Tribes by Joe Cotton, and I want to get into uh, another ethnic group. We're going to look at the Japanese a little bit this week and talk about them and uh, go from there. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about getting into that because those are books I read a couple of years ago and I'm kind of going over them now, so it's pretty cool. But again, if we're saying, uh, since we've dedicated this show to the illustration of the need of a central culture in the black race, with the aim of examining the consequences of not having a central culture in the black race, historically and presently, the most pressing question, the most important question, of course, is what is culture? Culture is a playbook for a race or ethnic group or nation company, sports team, anyone. Culture is uh, coming together of shared values and beliefs. It helps to educate. Uh, it helps in entrepreneurship. It, it has symbols that are utilized that acknowledge a particular group of people. Culture must be learned. You can't just be born with it. You're not just, just standing around and you're Hispanic and you know everyone knows Spanish. You know, someone taught you Spanish. Someone gave you values with through Spanish, through that language. Uh, it's a connecting point of a race and ancestral, ancestral rituals. Uh, it's also things that were successful in a race are passed down through culture. If you know how to cook food, it is your culture that passes it down. If you know how to build and deal with a particular wood. See, every, 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 every part of the globe is not exactly the same. There's wood, but there's different types of wood. How do you cut this wood? How do you keep this wood? How do you treat this wood so that you can live in it? All those things are passed down through culture. Uh, when you go into a new environment and you learn the skills that to survive in that environment, it is culture that is utilized to pass down and, um, and helps generations behind you, you know, to, to survive in that environment. It is culture that may, you may have brought those skills and knowledge 
from another part of the world and globe that enable you to take advantage of the geography of the environment that you, you might live as any ethnic group or any race of people that's somehow in a new location. So culture does that. Culture is a center point for groups of uh, rituals of birth and death. Uh, culture is an economic, strategic planning for a race, acquisition, starting up business, educating, of course. Um, through culture, the transportation of history of a race, its identities are all done through culture. Culture is a rendezvous place for ethnic group. It cannot... Without it, you cannot collectively do anything economically, socially, politically, so, uh, security-wise without this rendezvous place. Uh, culture are the daily rules and regulation of an ethnic group. Culture is the economic and political, spiritual, uh, geographical rallying point for people. Uh, culture is a template for a race. Without it, it... Um, it essentially cannot exist as a cooperative entity. And there are things that only culture can do. Only culture can uh, uh, can love a specific people. Uh, God loves all people, but culture can help you love yourself in a specific way. Uh, only culture can teach how how to respect one another. Culture can teach you how culture can teach you that education is important. And there are, educate, there are ethnic groups, as we talked about earlier, that come from the same impoverished areas. Uh, I'm thinking Jews, Italians, and Irish, but other Asians, uh, the Chinese, that value education. And they are fanatical in the pursuit of educating themselves. And if not educating themselves, they make sure their children get educated. Same thing with uh, Caribbean. And I think uh, the Nigerian in our community are known for that. Well, you better get straight A's in those households. Don't really play. And I'm not certain that they're all that proactive with teaching their kids. Well, they have to do some. Uh, I, I did a lot of reading to my children. And um, I taught my son how to play chess. That's pretty standard in Caribbean and specifically Nigerian uh, as an ethnic group. That, that's culture that teaches them that, okay? Culture can teach you how to honor the old. Culture can teach you a serviceable dynamic between genders. Culture can organize you around economics. Only culture can do these things. Culture can properly, um, can, um, can, oh, it can, it can, it can deal with conflict in a cultural way. It can create symmetry between classes. As we look at uh, the Manning Marable book, what sticks out to me in, in Professor Manning, uh, Manning Marable's book is the lack of continuity in the black community in America, both post-Civil War and in, many, in some cases today, the lack of continuity and symmetry between the classes. You have... Uh, the rich blacks have a different agenda from the poor blacks. The working class blacks, in many cases, have a different uh, agenda from the rich blacks. So all these issues um, 
come from a central culture would deal with that. Okay, a central culture would put them all on the same page. And so that is one of the key things that um, has been a missing ingredient for the black community. And so since culture is so important, I now want to look into um, areas or ethnic groups in which a central culture has been a big help to them. And in, uh, I usually look at the Jews, as we know, they have, a, they have a, a great sense of education, they have a great sense of the importance of ownership, entrepreneurship, and, you know, that's kind of their history. This week, we're going to look at the Asians, we're going to look at the Japanese as a race, as an ethnic group, and how having a central culture has been a tremendous aid and asset to them. All right? So first, uh, uh, we have to look at the Japanese. A bit of their history is that they've been a closed society. And because they were a closed society, they were passed by technologically. It's interesting they almost operate like a cult in this book, in, in the book um, Tribes by Joel Kakinen. They talk about the Japanese as being so unified, so tight, so fanatical with each other. They almost are a tribe and they literally alienate people. But right now we're going to look into how their oneness has aided them. So their history is such that, again, for hundreds of years, uh, no one landed on that island. They are powerful warriors. They had their own economy and all that worked well for them. But a lot of times if you're too closed off from society, which is exactly what happened to, to the Africans and other ethnic groups, not just the Africans, other ethnic groups, if you're too secluded from the world, Technologically, economically, militarily, and politically, the world tends to pass you by. That's what happened to the Japanese. Uh, the American empire was just starting, and the American empire was really built on trade and having trade routes with large numbers of people. U.S. gunboats came to Japan um, in the 1800s, uh, it, it, they did not attack Japan, but it was a show of force to the Japanese. Their, their markets were closed to American goods, and uh, an American admiral brought the gunboats in and said, no, your goods are not going to be closed to your, your, your uh, markets are not going to be closed to American goods. We're going to sell them here at our, at our leisure, you know. And with these gunboats behind them, I think it was Admiral Perry, but uh, with these gunboats behind them, Japan knew they didn't really have a choice. They didn't have any technology on par with the United States militarily at that point. So they had to open up and trade with the U.S. This had an interesting effect on the Japanese. They, they grew up fast. They realized that the world had passed them by and that they had to do something about this. Now, the, the, here's where their oneness and their monolithic culture 
They're monolithic. There's one language that spoke there, not too many others. They have the same religion. They have the same customs. And it's not a, a, a bunch of different groups um, that have, are, they're not a melting pot. You know, basically it's one, uh, one race of people on that island. And so the strength of that, when they want to do something collectively, when they want to do something as a nation, it's not hard for them to do. And so what they began doing is trying to upgrade themselves economically, education-wise, technology-wise, learning. They did this. Uh, they became a global power or definitely a naval power. They basically emulated Great Britain. And they, as Great Britain, had a great naval power, uh, na uh, had great naval power that increased their commerce. Both Japan and, and Great Britain are very similar, and they don't have natural resources on their home island. So they have to go get, take, buy or trade to get the natural resources, natural resources from other areas. And so that's what the trade and the colonialism and imperialism, uh, sometimes they do it by force, sometimes they do it by trade. But that was the Japanese approach. They came, they became proficient fairly quickly. And what ended up happening is they became powerful. And uh, they became another empire. They then, now they're in the Pacific Ocean, the other great economic, so they were an economic, they were an emerging economic power, although they were not respected. Japanese goods were not respected in the 1900s, early 1900s, uh, pre-World War II, definitely not, but they were very good at doing it on a massive level, meaning they could move massively as one nation, and they did a very good job of this. The, they had their Navy, which was doing well, and uh, it protected their goods, but they were in the Pacific Ocean, and of course, there was already a dominant economic power in that Pacific Ocean, and of course, it's the United States. So um, they came into conflict over Japanese expansion. So uh, Japan, Japan uh, expanded too much, conflict happened, and war broke out. Now, truthfully, once uh, America, this is a sidebar, once America came and kind of forced Japan into the modern age, they kind of picked their own poison with Japan because Japan was going to do, if Japan was going to come into the modern age, and be like Great Britain, they were going to be a colonial power. That means going into territories and markets and taking them over. When the Japanese did that, they, that's what brought them into conflict with the Western, with America and Great Britain, because number one, Great Britain still had colonies in the Pacific Ocean, in the Pacific uh, region of the world. And of course, the Japanese wanted to get markets for them. So, uh, Ultimately, this resulted in uh, the war in the Pacific, in which the Japanese lost. Interesting thing, interesting though, they lost the war, 
Uh, they had two nuclear bombs dropped on them. And uh, they now were trying to regain their power and to rebuild their structure. Here's where their culture helped them again. And the oneness of their culture and the fact that they have a monolithic culture helped them again. They began um, industrializing. So now at post-World War II, the world is industrialized again. And technology, computers, all of this is starting out. And Japan is able to kind of quickly move as one nation. Remember, they're into education. They're into the sciences. And so those are all the tools that get into building a powerful industrial nation in which, and that's what they did. Honor is, and their culture helped them again. Honor was important to uh, the Japanese people. So when they agreed upon doing things, they, um, when they worked towards things, when they wanted to, uh, when they gathered upon themselves as a nation to move forward, they were able to do it fairly quickly and efficiently. Honor was very important to them. Losing face is a cultural thing in Japan. So if you're, this is not uncommon in Japan. If you're in an industrial area and you have a quota uh, in Japan, if the quota was behind in your neighborhood, in your region, that's somehow culturally a loss of faith to the Japanese. The Japanese people would literally work for free on the weekend to make sure that the production levels were where they needed to be because they did not want to lose space. So this is like the 50s, 60s, and 70s. That's the type of unity and oneness that the Japanese race had, and it served them well. Uh, the Japanese people uh, created their own unique diaspora that uh, that aided them. So a diaspora meaning they were, it was, again, they, they kind of have a cultist mentality, according to Joel Cotton in the book Tribes, and that they needed to be international, but they wanted to maintain their cultural uh, identity. So the Japanese went out of their way to do this. So apparently... If you're a Japanese, you literally might fly to, let's say you lived in the United States or Canada or France, and they have a diaspora all over the world. You literally will fly in a Japanese plane. You will be transported by, I don't, I don't know if this is exactly the case, but it most likely it is. The transportation to take you to your hotel will be Japanese. The hotel you stay in will be Japanese. If you live in a neighborhood, it's possible you live in a neighborhood that there are large numbers of Japanese in it. Whatever religious uh, ceremonies you go to, this is not in Japan and not just America. This is all over the world, wherever they are. 
you have a religious place that is Japanese. The restaurants you go to are Japanese. And I think it mentioned like movie theaters and in, 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 uh, in, uh, uh, plays and, and, um, uh, uh, theaters. Their regular theaters are Japanese as well. So they have their own, they literally have their own infrastructure internationally in such a way that they never lose their identity. And of course, if they're doing all that, the schools that the kids go to are literally Japanese, where everyone speaks Japanese. So there are places on this planet where Japanese people work with Americans. They work in their own countries, uh, companies, but literally no one speaks any language but Japanese. That's, that's how unique and extensive that their manufactured diaspora is. And so it's clearly the oneness and the unity and the centralization of their culture allows them to do this. They all know they're on the same page. They all know they're, you know, there's one team. They all have one goal, which is to make uh, Japan a, an economic power. They want to make, uh, they want Japan to be the most successful country economically, socially, in any way possible. And everyone is on board with that. Now, there are drawbacks to this. The drawback, of course, is <laughs> for the other people that work with them, you feel a little bit alienated from them. So I'm not saying that. You know, there, there are extremes to everything, and I think that may be the case with the Japanese. But clearly their centralized culture has, has been a major bulwark with them, number one, jumping back into modern civilization not once but twice. The first time when Admiral Perry and the, and the U.S. Navy forced, brought the gunboats in in the 1800s, and said, you're going to trade with us whether you like it or not. That's number one. They, they took action after that. Then when they lost, then they became a power and uh, stepped, you know, started a war with the wrong country. And it's interesting, they literally started a war with the country, the only country in the world that could uh, be, defeat them. When they started a war with the United States, there was virtually no other country that could, uh, according to Max Hastings, the book uh, Max Hastings, Divine Retribution, any other nation that had they went to war with at that time, they would have won. The only one that uh, would have gotten them that could beat them was the United States because of our industrial power. Our industrial might, as uh, Admiral Yamamoto knew, once their industrial might kicks in, uh, that'll be that. But he said, we can win for two years, which is they almost did exactly that. But once the U.S. industrial complex starts to kick in, we won't be able to compete with them. And, we, and that's what happened. So they, they, they picked a war with the one nation they could not. So I guess they learned from that. So after the war, they still pursued their natural resources, but they did it with agreements and corporate through the corporate. With, through, they, they corporatized their political agenda post-World War II. So their industries, their corporations, their franchises are what pursues their interests now instead of their military. It's worked well for them. So uh, 
their their unity and the centralization of their culture and their oneness has helped them come back into the modern age twice. Post, uh, you know, pre-World War II in the 1800s with Admiral Perry, and then post-World War II when their, their whole infrastructure was destroyed and they had to come back. They had to not only come back, but they had to come back into a new world, you know, going into the 50s and 60s, technology changing and what have you. This is what have helped them to do that, and they still had their own individual agenda, which which was, you know, for Japanese supremacy. And so I guess they weren't looking for it politically as much. Uh, they were looking for it economically. They've done very well. So that's looking at a group in which um, a central culture, an ethnic group, a central culture has been a major bulwark and helping them to attain uh, their interests, we now look again at um, not having a centralized culture and having a decentralized culture has hurt an ethnic group. And so um, and we're going to get into Manning, uh, Professor Manable's book, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America. And as I said, there's no continuity with black groups anyway, uh, and that's been a major impediment to our progress. We've made progress, but it's been much harder for us to collectively move forward and then, of course, maintain our progress because there's no continuity. Individuals have success. Groups have success. But the overall, it's much harder uh, without that centralization of culture. So let's look at having a decentralized culture and how it's hurt the African-American community. Uh, the great author... Chancellor Williams wrote in his book, The Destruction of Black Civilization, the West African population of, of black people who occupied that area of Africa were, in fact, refugees that were there, um, that came from their own, that came from East Africa, that built their own singular society and civilization. Uh, with their own unknown centralized language, unknown to this day. But uh, when they did this, they had a central language. If you have a central language, that's a key component of having a centralized culture. So when blacks were in charge, when they were in, when they were, had, when they had their manifest destiny, they had a central culture and they had a central language. That was in East Africa. Because of natural disaster, Weather changes, migrations of Arab populations from Asia Minor, they began uh, migrating across the continent to the western portion of the continent. As this happened, they began to split into uh, different groups, going to different parts of West Africa, forming their own tribes with their own tribal languages and culture. With one African culture uh, country, let's say Nigeria, let's say Angola, with one country having up to 100 tribes, having no central state uh, European incursion to deal with, European incursion was unchecked, and instead of unifying to deal with the common threat posed to the region, on the contrary, the slave trade caused the infracticidal uh, wars to ensue. So basically, blacks made war 
on other blacks to give slaves to whites that the whites took and colonized Western civilization, the Western Hemisphere, became imperial powers. And, of course, they did this in the 16 and 1700s, and by the late 1800s were powerful enough to come back and colonize all of Africa and break Africa up into different groups. This is what happened. The fragmentation of black race created a factional reality in which the black man, so this uh, fragmentation of the black race has created a reality in which the black man has not needed to maintain any black civilizations or its own societies in 5,000 years. And, of course, there are unfortunate realities to this. Um, since the black man does not concern himself with black civilization, he's not interested in the value of things. He does not value knowledge. He does not value information. He pursues mating rights instead of attempting to domesticate uh, the ecosystem in which he resides to control it. Um, it's interesting. That's an interesting point because in reading books from a Dr. Thomas Sewell, he got into, and then I, I'm glad I read this book. I had no idea. You know, the ethnic groups come here, and uh, there's a lot of resentment of Koreans and other ethnic groups that seem to come to America and pass by African Americans. And we, they, they're able to get loans that we can't get. They're able to get, they seem to get better treatment uh, that we don't get, factually. These are facts. I absolutely, that is true. Uh, I can't dispute this. But what you don't understand is why. What is it that they, you know, what do, what do they have? And I can't say this in every instance, but uh, Professor Sewell points this out in his books. First of all, the ethnic groups like Koreans have their own economic system. So they get money from other Koreans. All right. They also pool their money together. Pool their money together. That means a Korean family will move here, Chinese family definitely, will come here. They may live in one house with several other families and pool their resources. Now, Hispanics do this. A lot of ethnic groups do this. The Koreans and the Chinese are more strategic in the form of ownership. So they're going to do this to pool their resources to get a small business. They may loan, they may borrow from each other. That's one of the ways they do this. Okay? So that's culture that does this. We don't do this. And uh, Professor Sewell, Sewell does a great job of explaining how, uh, particularly with Indian groups, Chinese, there are a lot of times that ethnic groups come from different areas, but they all have a commonality to them. So a similar type of, so if, we, if it's if it's an Indian, they're Indians from this area are coming. And they have a certain skill set, not all the same skill set, but there's a, a, a certain skill set that they have when they come here from specific parts of India, from specific parts of China. 
Now, here's crit- this is I, I didn't understand that until I read the book and understood the book. What Professor Sewell is saying is they have a more focused um, um, approach, meaning they come here with more continuity. When you're decentralized, you have more conflict with each other, any race. The other ethnic groups basically come here with a stronger playbook and game plan. They're more condensed. They're with each other. They work with each other. They trust each other. So when it comes time to start a business, it's much easier. When it comes time to matriculate in, it's easier. That's one of their advantages that they have. They go to uh, particular areas and then uh, other people start going to that area. So even if they don't live in the same house, and I see them here, it's amazing at the bus stop, um, they they all, like, uh, it's clear that a bunch of Indians live in this complex. You see them, and another thing I don't know if people have noticed, is something cultural, they walk a lot. They do a lot of walking. Uh, men walk together, women walk together, whole families walk together, old people walk together. It's cultural. And when you drive by these nice uh, suburban neighborhoods, you see bunches of Indians constantly walking and exercising. have no idea why, but it is cultural. And so these are the things that culture does uh, for you, and that's uh, these are the consequences to uh, the black man not building and maintaining his own civilization because it impacts how you think and what you do. Um, he he values he values physical prowess instead of societal dominance, owning wealth, creating pro- uh, owning property, creating wealth. He questions all black authority uh, as well as being naturally subservient to any regular authority. This is, you know, the negatives of and the consequences of the black of uh, the black man not maintaining his own uh, civilization. The consequences of not needing to build and maintain his own civilizations has um, has has had, you know, pretty obvious results for the black man. He is remedial in military science, uh, and, and military science, a great example of military science is this new conflict that's brewing over um, uh, the, um, uh, wow, race, oh, race theory, critical race theory, yes. We have an issue with critical race theory. Uh, and, and what you're having with that, it's really not. It's basically the theory that, you know, white people have never done anything to anyone, and, and teaching them anything otherwise is not good <laughs> to America. And so there's a big issue with parents all over the country in school systems with critical race theory. I guess critical race theories teach a more realistic, um, historic, um, um, uh, historic approach to education and a more realistic historic uh, discussions on what, you know, on,
on history, like what really was done to the Indians, what really was done to this group and what have you. And a lot of people aren't having it, and particularly getting into poor treatment of African-Americans. It's not, here's, here's military science part of that. It's not a coincidence that we're hearing a lot of rhetoric about uh, reparations to the black population with now people having a problem with critical race theory. See, the, the whole point, if you start te- teaching kids what was done to black people in an unfair, unconstitutional, immoral way, we're now getting into money and now owing black people for their free labor, which was a critical component of early America. So that's military science. That's understanding that this may lead to that, and we need to nip this thing in the butt. So that's, that's military science. The black man is remedial in that. That means you're always behind. He's always, things are done to him, and then he tries to react instead of putting himself in position to where you can't do anything to him in the first place. Culture does that. So he's, uh, he's remedial in, in, in military science, um, power creation and acquisition, not even an understanding on how they work together, making him a vulnerable to other predatory ethnic groups and a marginal ally at best. So now other ethnic groups are able to move into his neighborhood make more money out of his neighborhood than he makes. Um, first of all, it's hard for him to make money in his own neighborhood because it's hard for him to deal with the other black people. That's the natural uh, decentralized, the natural antagonism that exists, that other ethnic groups are stronger at, main, at they're stronger and better and more efficient at uh, managing. Not that they come in and love each other, not that they come in and they all, all eight Koreans get along with each other, all Chinese get along with each other. First of all, many of the reasons they have to come here is ethnic conflicts in their own countries. But what they have a better uh, job of doing is managing conflict and not allowing it to get into the way of the overall goals and aspirations of the ethnic groups. Culture does that. Uh, so in, in the black, and again, the black man not understanding power makes him a marginal ally at best. Sometimes he doesn't understand the whole picture. More black people should have voted, as I've said before, in the Hillary Clinton election than voted in the Barack Obama election. Once the country was so polarized, the urgency of the black population to get out in droves was clear and present. And we, we know that the black population voted for Hillary, but did not come out in the numbers expected, and it, which was to their detriment. It's not like Hillary Clinton somewhere ducking police. You know what I'm saying? It's stupid. Anyway, uh, the so-called black community is quick to antagonize and alienate each other, uh, as I stated, and disrespect one another with an emphasis on not being disrespected. This ecosystem of a hostile discontinuity manifests itself in what I call black zombie nation. So, uh, since they, central culture is a key ingredient that's been missing in the black population, in the black race, it is important 
in an important component to the survival and prosperity of a race are their historic examples of ethnic groups not benefiting, which is what we just talked spoke about. So I want to get into, we're talking about black zombie nation and uh, the lack of black civilization. The next book I want to get into is what we talked about before earlier is Manning Marable's book, How Capitalism uh, Underdeveloped Black America. And chapter five in his book, uh, Professor Manning gets into black capitalism Black capitalism, entrepreneurs, and consumers—the historical, the historical evolution of the black market. Now, before we even get into this chapter, a decentralized black community uh, that does not have a centralized, you know, culture and does not have the unity. Those, the segments of its economy are not connected you know they essentially they're not purposeful in how they operate there's no strategic planning so there's no real way for all of those all of those components of black capitalism to effectively operate in my opinion and so we'll see by little uh, excerpts from this chapter um, what uh, if that, if that, in fact, is the case. Uh, capital accumulation, on chapter page 133, capital accumulation in the non-white periphery creates a number of social and political dislocations within the indigenous society. Businesses can operate at a profit only when there are adequate transportation systems, railroad systems, canals, highways, airports, modern communication systems, are required to link branch offices with the metropole to facilitate the completion of orders. A steadily growing number of women and men from the indigenous populations are needed to serve in clerical and lower-level administration posts. Thus, schools are uh, con um, are concomitant concomitant. A come a common part of the developmental process. So as as so long as both the content of its education and its pedagogy are oriented towards reinforcing the legitimacy of of capitalism and Western civil society, I have no idea what I just read. The in, the incessant drive for for economic growth and expansion also sparks an an inevitable transition within the religious ethos of workers since the Puritan work ethic promotes the proper ideological outlook for hardworking, non-disruptive labor force, it is possible, it is impossible, therefore, to talk about underdevelopment as a purely economic process because the, the human content of that dynamic is profoundly social, cultural, and political. Ah, I didn't really understand what Dr. Manimal was saying, but he's basically going, you know, culture is a major part of this process. Now, um, those that excerpts from the book on page 134, you know, kind of harsh for me to comprehend, you know, very, very wordy, but, you know, I ultimately, I absolutely agree. It takes 
roads, it takes um, it takes infrastructure to to integrate into a place that you want to create economy. What does that is black civilization, meaning their political groups. See, you're a businessman and you're a black business, but you don't have any political power. Well, who votes? Poor people vote too. Not being on one accord as a ethnic group impacts the ability, exactly what I'm saying, our group, our components of our society being de decentralized cannot help each other. So the infrastructure, roads, busing, education systems, all those things that make an, an area vibrant are done by politicians. Politicians are elected. Uh, they also they need money to run for office. So what businesses and what wealthy black people there were sort of used their resources to elect their people simultaneously with poor people voting for those. And that's been a major problem um, that a lack of a centralized culture has, um, that's a reality that exists. So I call that black zombie nation and the lack of black civilization. Okay, let's look at another part uh, from, um, <laughs> we barely got into Professor Manable's book, so we're going to have to get into more of his book before. Uh, this is at the end of the page on page 134. Although the lion's share of wealth was controlled by British colonialists and businessmen, underdevelopment did result in the creation of a marginal black petty bourgeois. By 1945, several thousand African small farmers produced 20% of the Gold Coast coca crop from their own land as the capital city. Uh, Accra, Accra expanded from a colonial village into an international port. The British were forced to hire Africans in a variety of petty marginal capacities, clerks, civil servants, teachers, skilled, uh, skilled blue-collar workers, hundreds of Africans became lawyers, doctors, dentists, newspaper editors, and held other more influential posts. At the end of World War II, about 400,000 African uh, small entrepreneurs own residential stores selling clothing, food, household items to the growing rural and urban proletariat. This social, oh, okay. this social strata, strata was simultaneously nationalistic and integration. It is to use terms perhaps more suitable, perhaps more suitable to African-American po uh, politics. Okay. Um, this, he's getting into the blacks that move forward a little bit, and we'll get back on this another time. Um, Basically, an elite was created. The elite, the elite was a product of capitalism, colonialism, imperialism. Its activities reinforced the process of Western capital accumulation and the, and the underdevelopment of the African masses. Now, what Dr. Manimal is simply saying is this elite had no real power uh, because they were decentralized. I say because they were decentralized. I'm saying that if there was a central culture, there would be stronger unity. They would be able to do more things for all of them. Uh, under the colonial system, 
the British, and this passage is talking about the British, cleverly and wisely, I wouldn't say wisely, but certainly cleverly, said, we'll hook up a couple of you, a minority, because we need you anyway, it makes us look good, but we don't want you working with the masses. Because together, obviously, you could be a problem to our whole operation. So a central culture uh, is something that were easily, in the end, the black populations were easily divided. And I, maybe they already were, which is the whole point of a centralized African culture. So uh, to all the people out there listening, I really appreciate your time this week. Uh, I've enjoyed getting into these books. I'm going to look at them some more uh, to see what else is in there that we can bring to the show. Uh, I hope I've I hope I've made my case for the need of a central culture in the African American community and the Black race. Um, I wish everyone a great week. I hope you have a great weekend. And uh, thanks for your time. Be blessed.